I'm Captain Jonathan Bratton. I'm the commander of the 251st Engineer Company, Sappers, and the Maine Army National Guard. And additionally, I'm the command historian for the Maine Army National Guard. And I'm here to talk to you today about the Battle of Antietam. September 1862. Civil War is in its second year, and in the Eastern Theater, U.S. Army forces vied for control of the area between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia. Now, the two primary field armies in this theater of war were the U.S. Army of the Potomac, commanded by Major General George B. McClellan, and Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, commanded by General Robert E. Lee. Now, as September began, Lee decided that it is time to strike a blow into U.S. territory. So on September 4th, the Army of Northern Virginia, numbering about 55,000 troops, crosses the Potomac River from Virginia into Maryland. Lee had three operational objectives for this campaign. Defeat the U.S. Army on its own soil to be able to bring the war to a political conclusion. Carry the war out of Virginia to give that region some needed space to harvest crops and bring up supplies. And also, thirdly, to rally pro-Confederate Marylanders to his side. Early on, Lee detached about one-third of his army under General Thomas J. Jackson to seize the U.S. garrison and supply depot at Harper's Ferry. This is going to open a vital supply route that he's going to need to sustain his army during the invasion. Doing so, he divides his army in front of the enemy. Now, in one of those crazy absurd moments that all historians really live for, um, the kind of thing that when you read it, you're like, come on, that can't be true. Uh, a copy of Lee's orders splitting his army in half uh, to his subordinate commanders, wrapped up in cigars, go figure, uh, gets picked up by some U.S. cavalrymen in a field one day. And these troopers realize what they got, and they send it to uh, hire to General McClellan, uh, who is, of course, overjoyed and says, basically, if I can't beat Lee with this information, I'll go home. So big words from George McClellan. And this brings us to our first lessons learned moment. What constitutes intelligence? So the army says the intelligence is a product resulting from the collection, processing, integration, evaluation, analysis, and interpretation of available information. So it's what you have available as a result of your information collection. Now, McClellan has a few things available to him. He has Lee's orders that tells him where Lee is going, but not how many troops he has. And for that, he has private intelligence agent Alan Pinkerton's assessment of enemy strength. Now, Pinkerton's collection sources, they're going to range anywhere from southern newspapers to random bystanders to some guy standing at the railroad station and counting troops as they go by. Not exactly the most accurate. His assessment of enemy strength is going to be from 90,000 to 110,000, over half of what Lee actually has on hand. So did McClellan actually have a way of assessing Lee's real strength? He absolutely did. He had his cavalry division, but uh, he failed to use his primary tool for intelligence collection and so was left with the information they had at hand, which was uh, 100,000 enemy moving in two different directions. So this is important to remember because his understanding of enemy strength is going to absolutely fundamentally shape every decision he makes in the coming battle and is going to inform his commander's intent. 
Even with this information, McClellan takes far too long to move his 85,000 men into pursuit. Lee discovers the loss of the orders and directs all forces available to concentrate in the vicinity of Sharpsburg, Maryland, which they do over the 14th and 15th and 16th. What happens is uh, on September 15th, Jackson captures Harper's Ferry, hurls the garrison, and begins a hard march back to Lee. Uh, This force arrives back to Sharpsburg on September 16th and 17th, respectively. McClellan misses a key opportunity to destroy the Confederate army in detail. On the afternoon of September 16th, McClellan gets close. He has two corps on the field that he sends across Antietam Creek, uh, north of the Confederate left, skirmishing with rebels posted there and pushing them back. But he does not press an attack. Lee now knows where McClellan intends to attack, uh, and so reinforces his left wing. And uh, McClellan's plan, his battle plan, is uh, he intends to attack Lee's uh, left with four corps against this one wing. And then he's going to use Major General Ambrose Burnside's much larger 9th Corps on the U.S. left, Lee's right, to create a diversion. Once McClellan had cracked Lee's left, Burnside would attack the right, and thereby assault from the south, rolling up the enemy's flank. Then the entire 5th Corps and the cavalry division held in reserve uh, would exploit this breakthrough, but were also held in reserve to protect against these masses of Confederate troops that uh, McClellan is just convinced that Lee is holding on to. So the critical issue here is that McClellan fails to share this entire battle plan with his subordinate commanders, with his corps commanders. He, uh, he issues all of his orders to each corps separately so that no one actually knows what's happening on the rest of the battlefield. Thus, you really can't achieve synchronization at all or anything even close to a common operating picture. Um, and with his command post a mile to the rear and without the benefit of real-time communications as we know them today, McClellan fights a battle that is outside time and space. On the early morning of September 17th, uh, Major General Joseph Hooker's 1st Corps attacks down the Hagerstown Pike, looking to turn Lee's left. However, he's attacking piecemeal, division by division, which dilutes the ability to mass fire on the enemy. So as each division strikes, it gives Lee the opportunity to pull troops from other parts of his line and push them against the 1st Corps attack. Notwithstanding this, the 1st Corps smashes through Jackson's troops posted along the pike and in Miller's cornfield. Lee commits reinforcements, drives the 1st Corps back in incredibly heavy, brutal fighting, units trading volleys at the distance of 30 yards or less in some cases. At this point, Hooker requests assistance from Major General Joseph K. Mansfield and his 12th Corps, and McClellan authorizes this very green corps to join the fight. Now, inside the 12th Corps, you have the 10th Maine Volunteer Infantry, then commanded by Colonel George Beale, in carrying on its roles uh, that morning about 298 men. Now, the experience of the 10th Maine uh, is going to be an experience that's similar to uh, most other U.S. regiments that day, really. Um, Hard fighting, really rarely ever knowing what's going on on the rest of the battlefield. Um, Regiment was posted in reserve, but as the fighting increased through the morning, they were moved closer and closer to the front lines around the East Woods. The 10th Maine is formed on the extreme left of the 12th Corps attack, and now like the 1st Corps, the 12th Corps is also committed piecemeal, division by division, brigade by brigade, diminishing the attacking power of the whole unit. The 10th Maine goes into the East Woods around 8 a.m., accompanied by their mascot, a dog named Major, uh, and begins a sharp fight with the enemy in their front. 
For the men of the regiment, Antietam is a very confusing affair as the regiment presses ahead really company by company, uh, engaging whoever they can find, trying to keep unit cohesion, uh, driving Confederate skirmishers in front of them before they run up against the main Confederate lines. Um, and as an example of just how confused these battle lines are, at one point, General Mansfield himself rides up uh, to Company C of the 10th Maine and orders them to stop firing into their own troops. The Mainers insisted that these troops in front of them are the enemy, as indicated by the return fire. General Mansfield peers into the smoke and says, yes, yes, you are right. Right around the same time, he is hit with a rebel bullet, uh, falls out of a saddle, mortally wounded. Colonel Beale is then wounded. Lieutenant Colonel Philip Brown is uh, also wounded with command falling to Major Walker, who was very sick that day. So a lot of leadership problems within the regiment very quickly in the fight. Um, that uh, notwithstanding, the regiment holds its ground and fights until relieved uh, later on that morning by fresh troops. Uh, they pull out of the fight. Um, they've only got about 100 men left at the end of the day with 31 killed, 41 wounded. And the regiment really wasn't sure what it had actually done that day at Antietam, which, like I said, very similar to the experience of many units, both in the uh, U.S. Army and the Confederate Army, due to the confusing nature of the fighting. So the fighting continues through that morning, as the 12th Corps attack, unsupported, sputters to a halt. Now, Mansfield is down, Hooker is down, he had been wounded in the morning in the foot. Uh, so there's no really no one, there's no unity of command in this area, uh, and no one to carry out the commander's intent. That is, if there even had been a commander's intent to carry out. Uh, so the battle, the battle comes to a halt. McClellan, hearing that the 12th Corps uh, is struggling, sends in the 2nd Corps uh, in the center to relieve the pressure on Mansfield's Corps. Now, this order arrives so late that the 2nd Corps also attacks on its own, brigade by brigade, um, and they're assaulting a very strong Confederate position in the center uh, in a sunken road uh, in the middle of the line. Even with this, one brigade manages to break the rebel line uh, and come in on the flank, firing down into the sunken lane. Uh, the rebel center broken, really one single push by reinforcements would have caused the entire thin, fragile line to collapse. However, believing that he is outnumbered, McClellan refuses to commit his reserve. Instead, he commits the newly arriving 6th Corps, just getting to the battlefield, to his right flank, believing that it needs to be reinforced because it's in danger of being overrun, when in reality, Lee barely has enough troops there to man his own lines. All right, so we've talked about that part of the battlefield. Now, transitioning down um, to the U.S. left. Uh, on the left, things are not progressing super well either. Uh, you've got two divisions of the Ninth Corps who are supposed to have crossed Antietam Creek south of the lower bridge around 9 a.m. Ford was supposed to have been reconned by engineers on McClellan's staff. Uh, however, when the Ninth Corps arrives at the Ford, they find it is, surprise, unfordable. It is impassable. Uh, the recon was not actually done correctly. Once more, poor reconnaissance continues to be a problem in the U.S. Army of the Potomac. And so the divisions go in search of a ford. Meanwhile, you've got this deception operation that's happening in front of the lower bridge uh, that turns into the decisive operation. Um, however, Burnside fails to employ any of the fundamentals of breaching. This is a gap crossing. Gap crossing is just like breaching. So you have to have your, your fundamentals of breaching. You have to have your suppression, your obscuration, uh, secure, reduce, assault. Burnside fails to do really all of those. He fails to suppress the riflemen on the far side of the bridge. And so the first attack gets cut apart. The second attack gets cut apart and so on. By 1230, Burnside finally moves up enough artillery to be able to adequately suppress the riflemen on the far side of the bridge. 
And by 1 p.m., you've got two regiments storming across, seizing the bridge. Um, in the meantime, the two uh, divisions downstream had managed to find a ford and were moving across. Um, so things are looking good, except they suddenly realize all these troops who have moved across need to have an ammunition resupply. This takes two hours because no one had actually planned for this. It takes two hours to bring the wagon trains up and get a resupply. This allows time for Lee to reinforce his lines on his right and for the last division, Jackson's last division, to come up from Harper's Ferry. Uh, so the Ninth Corps assault, it happens. They go into the town of uh, Sharpsburg itself uh, when they are hit by a counterattack of A.P. Hill's division from Harper's Ferry. Even though Burnside outnumbers Hill's troops almost two to one, uh, Burnside, like McClellan, believes that they are outnumbered and believes that this is the great mythical Confederate counterattack. Uh, and so he is going to pull his forces back uh, to, uh, to the lower bridge and, uh, and dig in. Uh, once again, McClellan does not commit any of his reserve. So this is around 5.30 p.m., and the fighting ceases, uh, thus really ending the Battle of Antietam. Now, Antietam is the single bloodiest day in the Civil War. It is, continues to be um, the single bloodiest day in American history. A lot of lessons learned in here for us, especially for leaders. All right, one, intelligence operations. They need to be resourced. They need to be continuously updated through an operation. Synchronization of all warfighting functions requires a robust mission command with a very clear commander's intent. Battlefield communications continue to dictate the speed of the fight. Gap crossings, breaching, whatever you want to call it, they remain uh, one of the most dangerous operations, and so SOSRA is imperative. With all that being said, Lee fails to achieve any of his operational goals due to the hard fighting of U.S. infantry, cavalry, and artillery, combined arms operations, and has to retreat back into Virginia. And so Antietam goes into the books as a U.S. victory. 